We are going to continue right where we left off in our series in Luke. We're looking at this historical document, which we call the Gospel of Luke, where Luke has recorded the eyewitness accounts of everything that Jesus said and did in his life, death, and in his resurrection, so that we might have the certainty of faith, the confidence that what we have heard about Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, is certain and true. And it's helpful to know these things, especially as you go through unsettling events. And I think about the world in which we live in. And a lot of it seems to be filled with anxieties and worries and fears. And people are up and people are down and people are all over the place. And the question that I want to ask today is this. How do you live settled in an unsettled world? Like, is this even possible? Like, the people around you are anxious. People around you are fearful. People around you are worried. There's news that brings these concerns to us. And the opposite of that is to have a settled heart. Settled is to be resolved, to know the course that you need to walk and to walk it. How do you live settled in an unsettling world? I was talking to some middle school teachers and some parents about what are some things that really occupy the minds of their middle schoolers or those going into high school. And this wasn't so much about the things that are normal or that we would experience as part of you know, human development or just concerns of being a middle schooler. I mean, there's just enough to, to make you afraid in middle school. I remember when I was in middle school, you know, the world was crazy. I didn't know where I fit. I was concerned why I was losing my hair. I was 12. You know, what's going on? But I said, now, what are the things that, like, people are concerned about with, like, the world as they look at the world? And, and some of these teachers actually said this. Some of our students are really concerned about the wars in Ukraine and Russia. They're concerned about China and what China might do to the United States. They're concerned that, really, the world won't even exist in 50 years because of the things that have been told to them about the climate crisis and issues. And I thought, goodness gracious, I would not sleep at night if those are some of my concerns. And those are real for these young people. And those might be real for you. And then there's like personal unsettling news that maybe you've received of, of medical diagnoses, of your job, of having a job or needing new contracts. There's unsettling news about not only your employment, but the future of your kids, there's unsettling financial news. Some people in this room are just wrapped up in the, the failure of SVB and wondering what the United States government is going to do over the weekend as one of the largest banks in America has collapsed. And are we beginning another 2008? Is it possible to live settled in an unsettling world? Well, here in chapter 21 of Luke, Jesus is in that final week going to the cross. There's, there's some unsettling news. And there he's every morning at the temple teaching his disciples about what is coming and the future realities of the kingdom. And here in chapter 21, he says the most disturbing thing that unsettles them. Do you know what he, do you know what he says? Do you want to know what he says? Yes! yes! I have a participant! You and me, sister. All right, we're going to Luke chapter 21. You need a Bible today. The scriptures are not on the screens. 
So there's a Bible in front of you if you need it. Grab it. You can lean over, borrow a Bible from a friend. You can download the ESV app. You can download the Bible app, whatever you want. Throw your eyes on a page somewhere. Luke chapter 21. We'll start in verse 5. While some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. See this temple behind me? It's going to be destroyed. Now, we might not take that news and think, oh, well, who cares? Like, it's just a temple. You have to understand, this temple is the centerpiece of life, of where the community happens, where sacrifices happen, where all of their religion meeting with God happens. And they cannot imagine a world, like, if the temple was destroyed, essentially, the world would be over. I was trying to think of an example this week of, of what could be communicated to us to have the same frame of mind. And the best I came up with would be this. If I told you that at some time in the future, you will not be able to access any digital content. So you're like, hallelujah, get my life back. <laughs> Brothers are saying, wait, what do you mean? I mean, like, you turn on your phone and there is no Instagram. There is no Twitter. There is no TikTok. There's no ability to text anyone, call anyone. You cannot ask Siri. You cannot Google it. You cannot be in contact with anyone. You cannot access your bank accounts. You cannot pay for anything unless you have cash. And what would you think? The world must have ended. Like if I can't access digital content and digital platforms and call somebody... Like, goodness, what has happened? Has there been like some nuclear war? The world is over. And that's what the disciples are thinking. Wait, 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 what did you just say? There's there's coming a time when not a single stone will be stacked on this temple. Now, put our minds in, how big is this temple? This temple is massive and it's huge. I grabbed these pictures from the ESV study Bible. Here's kind of a, a picture of a cutaway of the temple. The temple stands over 60 feet tall. And those little ants that you see coming up the steps and inside that little building, that's just for scale of what it might look like for people to be coming up to the temple or be inside the temple. It's massive. And it's adorned with gold and precious metals and stones. It's actually a pride of life. And so that's why the disciples are like, Jesus, you're teaching here at the temple every single day. This thing is amazing. And it's massive. Not only is the temple, but then the temple complex. So they take this temple and they put it in the complex. And within the complex, you see it kind of sitting in the back. That first section past the gates is the outer courts. And the outer courts, that size right there that you see, is roughly the size of a football field from goal line to goal line. And this is just the temple complex that is set on the temple mount. And so here's that all set up in the temple mount. And that exterior length of the wall is over four and a half Football fields long. This is where Jesus is teaching this last week. And it's massive. And it's impressive. And it has taken generations to build. And Jesus, in response to their pride in it, says, there's coming a day when this thing will be completely destroyed. 
And the disciples think, wait, 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 wait. That sounds like the end of the world as we know it. And so they ask two questions. Check out verse 7. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the signs when these things are about to take place? So those are the two questions that frame the chapter of Luke 21. When will this be? And what are the signs that it's happening? Those are two questions that you might ask. If I said there's no access to digital platforms or content, you would say, when will this happen? And are there signs, indicators that you can tell me about so that I know to expect it's happening? So let's just do a visual description right here. We'll say this right here is what they're asking about. Jesus says the temple will be destroyed. We know the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Within 40 years of Jesus saying these words, it was completely destroyed by Rome. So he's talking about this event. And they say, when will this event happen? And what will be the signs? Like, there's got to be some things that happen leading up to this event that you can tell us about so that we can anticipate it's happening. And Luke 21 is essentially Jesus answering that question. What are the signs? When will it happen? But he takes their question about this, and he uses it as a launching pad to not only talk about the signs that are going to happen leading up to the destruction of the temple, but also another age. And signs after the temple leading up to another judgment that's cosmic, that's worldwide, that involves his second coming. And prophets often do this. They set up a near-term prophecy so that the generation who hears it can see the authenticity of what was said. They can validate what was said so they can be certain that what is prophesied here and they've seen happen will also happen at a later date. Does that make sense? So you have a near-term so that you can have confidence and certainty that what was said is true, and if this was true, then certainly this will be true at a later date. Make sense? Okay. When will this happen, and what are the signs that it's going to happen? He starts off the first one. This first one he warns about being deceived. See, when things are really unsettling in the world, and we're looking for answers, and we're looking for someone to fix the problems and to settle us down, People are often deceived at those times. We're most gullible when people are offering solutions to solve our problems, are we not? And so he gives them a heads up. So one of the signs is that people are going to be deceiving others. Verse 8, and he said, See that you are not led astray. You're not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. They're going to start telling you that they're ha- the time is at hand, and it's not yet. Don't follow them. We might be deceived today saying, there is no coming of Jesus Christ. There is no promise of the kingdom coming. Don't be deceived. And when you hear of wars and tumults and be terrified for these things, or sorry, do not be terrified for these things, must first take place, but the end will not be at once. It's not going to happen in a singular coming. There's going to be two of these. And so you're going to see all of these signs. You're going to see wars and rumors of wars. But the end is not at once. This is kind of what Jesus says is the beginning of things. And so in verse 10 he says, Then he said to them, 
Nations will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, so that's a phrase of where are these in chronological order? So signs in the heavens, cosmic signs, cosmic collapses. You're going to see things that are happening around the world with multiple nations fighting one another. There's going to be earthquakes, okay? Before those signs, I'm going to tell you something must first happen. So where do we put those signs? Where do we put the cosmic global signs that he just spoke about? We're going to see it's in this category here. It's, it's after 70 A.D., Signs for Christ's return. He says, okay, but before these things happen, let me tell you about the signs that you're asking about. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. So here's a sign of the times over here, is that people are going to hate you, and they're going to arrest you. And that's going to be amongst the Jewish people and the Gentile people. Synagogues indicating the Jewish leadership. Courts and governors, the Gentile leadership. Everyone's going to want to know what you're up to. People are going to be disturbed by your message. And so here's a sign. When they start arresting you, know that has to happen first before the temple is destroyed. And what do we know? We know this happens in Acts several times. And his encouragement to them is to not be discouraged that suffering's happening to them. Don't grow discouraged that hard things, that unsettling things are happening. He says, verse 13, I love it. In the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this persecution, verse 13, this is your opportunity to bear witness. Like this is an opportunity to speak on behalf of the gospel what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And how they can participate in the kingdom to come. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds. Not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So when you get pulled in front of governors, don't worry about it. Just relax. I'm going to give you what to say, and it's going to be so profound. They're going to be taken back by it, and it'll be convicting, and they won't even be able to challenge it. Here's a question. Did that happen in history like Jesus said it would? Absolutely. Here's one example from Acts. Acts is the historical happenings of the church in those early days. So post-resurrection, post-ascension with Jesus, the church is living out their mission, and Peter and John are talking about the kingdom, and guess what happens? What Jesus told them would happen they get arrested. They heal a man who's been lame his whole life. And people are upset about it because they're doing it in the name of Jesus. And crowds are starting to follow these disciples. And so they get arrested and they stand before the leaders. And Peter says, this is Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, All right, so God's going to give you the words. God's giving them the words, just like Jesus promised. And then Peter lays out the gospel story. And he culminates it with this final line. This is what Christ has accomplished. Therefore, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven 
given amongst humanity by which we must be saved. Jesus is it. And he lays out the argument and the conclusion, Jesus is salvation. And look at verse 13 of Acts chapter 4. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized they had been with Jesus. So what did Jesus tell them? Here's a sign of the times. Is before this event, you're going to get arrested. Don't be discouraged when this suffering comes upon you. It's an opportunity to share all that I've accomplished and that salvation is found in my name. And they do that just as Jesus said. By the power of the Spirit, they give their witness. And the hearers, what do the hearers do? They're astonished, just like Jesus said they would be. They're taken back. Like these uncommon, or these common, uneducated fishermen are so articulate, studied, as though they've been in the seminaries their whole life. How is this possible? They can't contradict it. In fact, many of them are convinced of what Peter and John say. And so Jesus is proving himself to be trustworthy. Here's a sign leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Right, back to Luke 21. So that's the first one. Or sorry, second one. So don't be deceived. Many people are going to come in and tell you, I'm he. Don't get deceived. They don't grow discouraged. Think of this as an opportunity. And then he gets really practical. Okay, so that's kind of mark this age. For, sorry, verse 16. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake. But not a hair on your head will perish. But your endurance, you will gain your lives. So not only are you going to be turned over by the governors, but there's going to be conflict. There's going to be an unsettledness even within families. Those who say that I follow Jesus aren't going to be loved even by moms and dads, brothers and sisters. And even family members are going to turn you in. He says, and some of you, here's another sign, some of you are going to lose your life. Not everybody, but some of you are going to be put to death. And then he says this unusual thing. After telling that some will be put to death, verse uh, 18, not a hair on your head will perish. You're like, I'm really confused. Some of us are going to be put to death, but not a hair on our heads, we're not going to perish. Well, what does perish mean? Perish means to be destroyed. What is it Jesus essentially saying? Is you will have these struggles. You will have these persecutions. You will have these opportunities. Some of you will be put to death, but I've got you. I've got you. I got your whole you. Death won't even be able to destroy you. I've got you. Remember, I'm going first through death. I'm going to conquer death. I've got you. No matter what's going on in your life, I've, I've got you. Not a part of you, not even a hair, will ultimately be destroyed. So that's this age, and it gets really close here now in verse 20. It says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Okay, destruction is getting close now. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. We're like here now, really close. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, now how did the fall of Jerusalem happen? Was Rome, a Gentile nation, 
came in and they laid siege to it. The story is Josephus and others mark out how the fall of Jerusalem happened. And part of it was that the Roman soldiers surrounded Jerusalem. The military tactic that Jesus said would happen. And Jesus is so kind because he, he cares about their life. He says, when you see this happen, okay, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. Verse 21, then let those who are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. Like, you should leave the city. Like, there's nothing good that's going to happen inside the city. You should get out of town. When you see this sign that's near, leave Jerusalem. Those who are inside the city, depart and let not those who are out of the country enter it. Don't, don't come inside the city when you see this happening. It's not a place of refuge. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Against these people. Man, it's hard. I mean, it's going to be hard in those days. It's going to be really hard for, for the ladies that are pregnant or nursing. You're going to be on the run. These are challenging days. I've told you beforehand so that you won't be unsettled. You'll be reminded of what to do. Verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive amongst the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So here are the signs. You're going to be betrayed. You're going to be after giving testimony. Some are going to be put to death. Family members are going to turn you over. There's going to be unsettling everywhere. And then when you see Jerusalem surrounded, like we're right here, get out of town. And then this is when the event's going to happen. And you don't want to be there. You want to be outside the city. Because they're going to be put to death by the sword. And then many captives are going to be led away, just like Josephus said happened. And then the Jewish people are going to be scattered amongst the nations. There's the diaspora all over the, the, the area outside of Jerusalem. And this is going to happen by the Gentiles, who are the Romans, Gentiles. And that's going to usher in then another event that you didn't ask about. I want to tell you about this. So the end isn't in, it's not going to happen at once, but it's going to happen in these two comings, in these two judgments, the judgment of Israel and then God's judgment ultimately at the end of the world. And so let me tell you about this other event that happens afterwards. This is where we're living today. He says, he calls it here, until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. This is called the time of the Gentiles. And it needs to be fulfilled until Christ returns. What is the time of the Gentiles? Well, there was a big question to Paul and to others in the first century. of Like, well, what happens to Israel in all of this? If they rejected Jesus... What comes of Israel? Has God rejected them? And the answer is emphatically no. God has not rejected his people. There's a covenant that God has made with Abraham that's an everlasting covenant. They're not going to go anywhere. In fact, we look around the world and say, man, Israel is strong today. It's like God was faithful to them. But, but spiritually, they still have yet to recognize Jesus. And so this is Romans chapter 11, verse 25. He writes to this church, and I think we could hear these words too. Lest you be wise in your own sight... I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, of like what's going on in the time of the Gentiles. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Like God desires not only for his children Israel to belong to the family of God, but he desires for the nations to have the opportunity, the Gentiles, 
to belong to the family of God. And so there's a time that the Lord has set to allow the nations to hear the gospel message. For the nations to hear about a covenant made with a man named Abraham. For the nations to hear about a promise made to a king named David. To hear about Jesus Christ who has come and to receive him as their Lord and Savior. So that the nations, the Gentiles, would believe. I mean, Jesus said this in Matthew 24. You're going to be witnesses to the nations. And all the nations are going to hear about the gospel message. And once all the nations hear and the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then the end will come. And so this is where we live, is in this time of the Gentiles. The nations are being invited in to the family of God. And so then he gives some signs, starting in verse 25, of what does this period look like? So in 25 he says, there will be signs in sun and moon. This is the the great signs he was talking about that come after these signs. There's going to be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So that's not just local Jerusalem. This is language of the whole earth. This is talking about another event. So these are signs leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ. We'll see. And so these are signs in the heaven. Things about the sun and the moon and the stars that have impacts on our earth. You might call these climate issues. And people are going to be really scared and wondering what to do about the seas and the waves, tides, rising waters. I mean, there's just like some things in here you're like are somewhat comical that the world is so spun up about. And you're like, I could join you in being anxious, except, except. Man, my benevolent father sent his son Jesus to tell me so I would not be unnecessarily surprised that these things are happening. And he describes, these are characteristics of this age that we should see. Nations warring against nations, civil unrest, climate concerns, Community relationships, even within the family breaking down, that characterizes this age. And would we say, that's the world I live in. Yet Jesus said you would. He's truthful. He's truthful. He tells us as it is, the real world. It'd be unusual to exist on this time in some utopia of like, what, what weird book is this? Like, I haven't seen a war. I can't, can you even think of the last war you saw? I can't even think of the last climate concern somebody had. Like, look at this old, outdated, primitive book. And yet, you just open this thing up and you say, did they write that yesterday? That's pretty wild. And so Jesus is saying, okay, you asked about this issue. When was this going to happen? I'm going to tell you signs leading up to this event. That happened in 70 A.D., which historically, factually, evidentially gives us the confidence to say, man, if Jesus predicted this, He's got this. I'm going to trust him for this too. And so as the world is in great distress and and they're terrified, he says all of this are signs in verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And then this thing culminates in the judgment of the world. 
Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Again, I think this is a point of don't grow discouraged. When you see all of these things happening and you have a propensity to say, oh, this is awful. What do we do? How do we live? Just straighten up. And you say, redemption's coming. Like I'm a people of hope, of anticipation. God's going to do something great. He's on the move. Lord Jesus, come and come soon. So don't grow discouraged. Be hopeful. And then he gives this parable. This is a, just an analogy of the things he talked about. He says, and he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree. A fig tree is often used in the prophets, specifically Amos, to talk about the people of Israel. So look at the fig tree. This is like, you know, maybe what's going to happen here. And the other trees. So look at the fig tree and all the other trees. Maybe Israel and like all the other nations, maybe. So look at them. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. Okay, so you know how to read the signs of the times when leaves come on the branches. Like that's what we're waiting for right now. It's getting to be springtime. And when you see the leaves on the branch, what do you know? What comes after spring? Summer. Wow, that's amazing. So, okay, you know how to read the signs of the seasons. So likewise, pay attention to everything I just told you so that you know what season it is in the time of human history. So also, when you see things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So when you see these things happening, you're not unsettled like, what's going to happen? It's over. There's no point and purpose of living. You say, no, 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 no. Man, I stand up tall, full of hope. I'm settled. The Lord has told me about these days. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So in this parable, remember it's a parable, but even though it's a parable, it's an analogy, he says, this generation will not pass away until these things have been accomplished. And this is where you get all kinds of ideas of what this generation means and what this, where this generation belongs in the eschatological camps of all sorts of ideas. And that, if that doesn't mean anything to you, no worries. Relevance is coming back in like three minutes. But they want to know, what is this generation that's living that's going to see all of these signs happen? And so the first is this, uh, this argument that this generation is simply speaking to those who are hearing the teachings of Jesus. This is the disciples, the people at the temple, those that the disciples are going to share this news with. This generation is going to see the destruction of the temple. It's going to see these signs. Other people say, well, there's other signs described here that didn't just get resolved in the first century in 70 AD. And so this generation must speak of something else. And so they take this generation to mean like an ethnic part or an ethnic people. So this generation being Israel. So a sign is that this Israel will not depart. They will see the fulfillment of these signs. And so the fact that Israel exists today could be a sign that these words are trustworthy and true. Israel will see the fullness of this, perhaps. But God has already made a covenant with Abraham that, that he was never going to betray, that Israel would always exist. So you don't need this text to, to show that. This generation could be the kind of people, meaning this generation that's evil and wicked, meaning evil and wicked people, they're not going away. 
until all of this is done. That's a possibility. There's another possibility that says, okay, there's a generation coming in the future. This is where a lot of people believed in the idea that there was a generation coming in 1948 when Israel was established as a country. And all of the signs and the times would happen when those people who are born in Israel from 1948 to the present would see the fulfillment of all of these things, a future generation. Some people took that a little bit more uh, proverbially and said, it's not the specific generation in Israel, but just meaning the last generation will see the beginning of these signs and the end of the signs, meaning the coming of, of Jesus Christ. Therefore, meaning when the signs appear, you're within one generation of the return of Jesus. Does that kind of make sense? Lots of ideas out there. What do I think? Do you care what I think? <laughs> Great. Uh, I think if you just take the plainest reading of the text, it makes the most sense. Especially if you see what Jesus is doing and giving a near-term fulfillment and a future fulfillment. And so if you just take the Gospel of Luke and say, all you have is the Gospel of Luke. Like someone just wrote you the Gospel of Luke like Luke did, gave it to somebody, and you read it. You would have already read nine instances where Jesus is addressing this generation. So Luke chapter 7 there's this generation, Luke chapter 9, five times in Luke chapter 11, again in Luke chapter 17, and here again in Luke chapter 21. And he talks about the present generation that's hearing his words. And so how, this generation is an unbelieving generation. Talking about the leadership of Israel. They've rejected Jesus and the words of John the Baptist. He says this generation is a wicked generation. He says the generations before had heard the prophets and turned their lives over to God, but this generation is going to be judged for all the things that have happened in, 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 in history with Israel. He speaks about this generation in which he has to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's Luke 17. And so I think it would be unusual for Luke to be talking using the words of Jesus and all of the times in which he's speaking to this generation, this generation, this generation, this generation I'm currently in, to somehow just like throw that away and speak about some future generation that they've never even heard of, especially when what was the frame of reference? What was the questions? When does this destruction of the temple happen? And what will the signs be? So I think the clearest, the plainest reading of the text is Jesus is talking in some ways of, you asked about when the destruction will happen. It's going to happen to the people within this generation. Like this generation is not going to pass away until the things that you asked about happen. And what do we know? Within 40 years, within that generation, as Jesus promised, all the judgment on Israel came. Now, that, can that be connected to a future generation which sees the same signs and the arrival of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. But remember, Jesus is teaching the disciples for their benefit. Now, I'm just like, here's a question about the temple. Cool question. Let me tell you about something that's going to happen 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years later. He does say, let me, let me answer that question. And let me also answer a question maybe you're not asking. Let me think broader beyond the destruction of Israel to what God will ultimately do in the return of Christ. And there is so much in the Gospels, in the epistles, in Revelation that speaks about all of this. I think Luke 21 primarily is helping the disciples understand this. And have a frame of reference that the coming of Christ will be after this. Okay? And so he, he gives this final 
After the parable, he gives this final um, imperative. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. I think it's speaking to us too in that. But hey, hey, watch yourselves. Pay attention to how you're living so you don't live into dissipation. What does that mean? Worthlessness. Like you just waste your life. And drunkenness. I mean, that's a way to waste your life is just being an alcoholic for your whole life. And then the cares of this world to be your primary cares. I would describe this as distractions. Like the world is so unsettled, you don't know how to operate in it, and so you just distract yourself. You just numb it. I'm just going to put the world away. He says, okay, here's three ways of, not, of how not to live in an unsettled world. Don't be deceived. Don't be gullible and just latch on to the person that says, I'll fix all your problems. I'm the Messiah. I can be the Christ for you. Don't do that. And then don't be discouraged. Like when, when troubles are happening in the world, this is an opportunity for you to show the world the reality of the gospel lived out in your life. Chris Crotzer was down here in first service, and I was, just, I was just seeing him as I was talking about this. And I mentioned this earlier in the sermon in first hour, but it just came to mind again with Chris. Chris had battled cancer a couple years ago and has been clean for a couple years and then recently was diagnosed with cancer again. And he got his port put in this week, and we were talking, and he's looking for like probably six weeks from now, he'll start treatment, being in the hospital for a month. And I said, hey, man, I just love texting you and, and trying to encourage you. Like, does that help? Like, what do you say when all these people, people at work, people in your community, are texting you about your cancer? He's like, man, it's the best. Because you get to say whatever you want. And it's like my opportunity to be like, oh, thanks so much for caring about me. I was in God's word this morning, and he was encouraging me. And I was around God's people. I went to church this weekend to be reminded of God's faithfulness. And let me tell you how God's caring for my wife and my kids and my family. He's settled. And in the midst of his suffering... It's an opportunity, he says, for him. I get to just tell him about how I'm living in the gospel reality of Jesus Christ, that he cares for me. I just thought, that's just phenomenal. That's how we want to live, settled in Christ in unsettling times, an opportunity to share. And so don't, don't be deceived. Don't grow discouraged. And this last one, don't be distracted. There's so many ways in which we can distract ourselves. Don't be distracted with meaningless activities and waste your life. So remember the question I asked? How do we live settled in an unsettled world? This whole chapter is unsettling. People are going to come in and try to deceive you. People are going to persecute you. There's, there's ways in which you can waste your life. And there's unsettling events in the cosmos. There's unsettling events in civil society. There's unsettling events probably economically. There's unsettling events in the family. And then there's one thing in this whole chapter that's like bedrock, firm, and fast. Did you see what it was? There's a thousand things it seems like that are unsettled, that are shaken. And there is one thing mentioned in here that's unmovable. Did you see what it was? It's just a small statement in verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. How do you live settled in an unsettled world? We live by the settled, secure, sure word of God. That's it. 
you just get yourself an ear and say, what did God say? Who did God say I am? What did God say about the world I live in? What did he say about the world and its troubles? Because he'll be honest with you. I love John chapter 16, 33. I've told you these things so that you might have peace. In this world you will have, what does Jesus promise you? Trouble. Trouble. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. Have hope. Why? I have what? Overcome the world. I have victory over every trouble you're currently in. Take heart, Christian. So how do you live settled? Bedrock anchor to my soul. The words of God. That everything else might pass away. But his promises, his word, never will. And so this is where I live. Stay awake, therefore. Be praying, speaking with him. So that we don't become entrapped. So that we have endurance to stand before God on the day of his visitation. All of that, I think, just, just beckons us to say thank you. Like, God, thank you for preparing us for these days so that we can live settled in such unsettled times because we live out of God's word. That everything that he promised came true so we have the confidence that everything he has said about what's ahead of us will also come true. Let's pray. Father, thanks for a congregation that gives me lots of time to talk about these things. Father, I pray that you would just build into people a hope, a certainty in your word that you have overcome every struggle and trouble in their current life. And that you got them. You've got them. Father, I pray that you would guard us from being deceived and wandering away from you and trying to pursue other lords and masters. Father, I pray that you would keep us hopeful so that we would not grow discouraged. And Father, I pray for my friends that they would stay engaged and not become distracted. That they would be participants in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ now. And so, Lord, may this all just turn to gratitude where we just say thank you. Thank you for being honest with us. Thank you for preparing us for this day in which we live. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.